it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Love this podcast because it crushes your dreams of getting rich quick. They actually got me into reading stats for anything. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Led by Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern. Step-by-step premium investing guidance for beginners. Your path to financial freedom starts now. Starts now. All right, folks, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. Uh, tonight we have episode 191. Tonight we have our good friend Braden Dennis back from Stratosphere Investing, as well as the Canadian Investor, one of my favorite podcasts. So we're going to talk a little bit about beginner mistakes. Uh, Braden has some great uh, insights into some things that we can avoid as beginner investors. So uh, I'm going to turn it over to Braden and we're going to go ahead and start having our little conversation. Say hello, Braden. Dave, Andrew, good to be back. I always uh, enjoy this recording. So uh, thanks for inviting me on. Yeah, thanks for coming. All right, let's uh, let's talk about some beginner mistakes. Uh, what are some of the more common ones that you've seen, Braden? Tell us a little bit about that. Sure, yeah. So there's a lot of new investors these days, and I think it's great. It's an absolutely awesome thing that people are getting into the DIY investing space and and making their money work for them. That's a great thing. Now, there are a lot of really common beginner mistakes and I see them so often and most people made them themselves. So I think that this list is a good small list of ones that I see very frequently. And if you could just avoid them right out of the gate, you will not only save yourself headaches, but you'll probably save yourself a little bit of money too because. Uh, they they typically end poorly if you go down these these holes. So the one I see really, really common for beginners is chasing dividend yield. This is really common. You start investing, you go on a stock screener, or just look for companies paying like 9% dividends. You think, I have this new awesome income source if I just buy these really high yielding dividend stocks. Now, on paper, that sounds awesome. You know, like you're getting that yield. But what's actually happening is there's 
typically a reason that the dividend yield is so high. There's a couple things happening. One, the price of the stock has fallen so aggressively that the yield is really high. And then two, they might just be paying out too much to the dividend and they might, you'll see that in their payout ratio. And that's typically not what you want to see for a long-term company. You want to see them reinvested in the business and grow it. And three, um, it's just not necessarily the best place for capital if you're, uh, if you're a long-term investor. So if you think the company can reinvest at a very high rate of return, you don't necessarily need a huge dividend yield. And if you have a long runway for growth, if you're not in that like maturation stage of your investing career, then you need to just be thinking about businesses that are going to continue to be able to grow and sustain growth rates and, and have a strong moat long-term. So companies that have really high dividend yields typically can have something wrong with them and can be on the later side of their, uh, of their life cycle. So that's, that's, that's a first one. If you guys have any yeah, comments on that, I'm sure you probably see tons of that. Yeah, let's start there. So you mentioned wanting to find companies that have good avenues for reinvestment. Give us some ideas on the kind of signs that you look for when you determine the difference. Cause you know, you could have one company versus another company. They could have similar yields, have two completely different reinvestment prospects. So how do you, how do you think of that on a high level? Yeah. Yeah. Good question. So I just want to clear up. Like I, I don't, I don't hate dividends. I love, I love getting dividends just as much as the next guy. It's just more so like really high yielders that are at risk of cutting the dividend. So what companies can do when they deploy capital is they can buy back stock. They can reinvest in the business. They can pay a dividend. They can make acquisitions. So depending on what type of business it is, if they have an M&A strategy, which is like acquisitions, or they have a really fast growing business that they can reinvest into marketing, into sales, into the product, there's a very good chance that they'll have like a high return on that invested capital if, if, it's a biz, if it's a business with a sustained moat. So we've seen that um, with lots of companies and even with, with acquisition type co's, typically you can get a really high return that you're giving, like when you're investing, you're giving management your capital to deploy and you're hoping that they can do that in an effective way. So if they don't have any good options, then they'll just pay it out to, to uh, shareholders with a dividend. There's nothing wrong with that. That's, that's fine. Um, it's just, do we want, you know, 80% of free cash flow going to the dividend? Not my style, but there could be a place for it with, with certain businesses. Is there, um, a number or does that number change where it makes you consider that maybe this yields a little too high and, and it kind of is more of a red flag than not? Yeah. Unless it's a bank or a, a or a utility. I don't really want to see anything over 4%. If it's a bank or utility, that's really common, like 5% yields on utilities and banks. No issue there. Like even like a real estate investment trust, that makes sense because of how stable cash flows are on a utility. That's kind of how they're structured to pay out a lot of it via the dividend. But if it's a growth business, uh, software, I'd be concerned at anything over 4% for sure. Is that 4% today or is that 4% in 
you know, in any any time of the market? Does it not matter? Yeah, I, I guess if there was like 2008 happening and, you know, in the next like, or even like March of 2020, where stock prices dropped 25, 35% in a, a matter of weeks, you're going to see that dividend yield rise up because it's trailing 12 months. So, I mean, the the, the yields on the market, like the S&P yield, dividend yield will, will definitely go up. I'd be shocked if it hit anywhere near four, but yeah, I mean, since it's also market cap weighted, the, uh, the S&P, I'd be shocked if it went even close to that, but that's a good question. That's a good question. It really depends on the business though. Okay. 4%, um, good rule of thumb and then kind of investigate further from there. So what about, um, another mistake that's commonly made by beginners that you have seen lately? Yeah, really common one. And, and one I made myself once upon a time was buying low price to earning stocks almost exclusively. It's kind of like dividend yield where low PE can sometimes be a value trap. It's not a necessarily good indicator of value for every business. Now, if it's a company whose main target is earnings per share growth and profitability and they're a little bit more mature, it's a great metric on your toolkit, but it's not a one size fits all. And it's certainly not a single metric to make investing decisions. So I think it's one of the tools in your toolkit as an investor is the price to earnings ratio. It's a great quick valuation ratio. A lot of people reference it. I talk about it all the time, but it is not necessarily indicative of what a cheap stock is if it has a low PE. Do you find that there are different industries or sectors that have different PE ratios that are more common for those like banks and utilities versus maybe tech? Yeah, for sure. It's a, it's a, exactly like the last the last point, right? Is since it is the in an equation there of of price over something, then the the company is optimized for different metrics depending on where they are in their maturation. So for instance, way back when everyone discounted Amazon. In 2015, everyone thought, you know, something trading at like 180 times earnings was way too expensive. I mean, the thing traded at like 1.6 times sales, which is really shocking in 2015 given Amazon's like sustained 45% top line revenue growth. So that's an example of a company that was investing heavily back into the business and not optimized for profits. So since in the equation, earnings is the denominator, price over earnings, that number is going to be absolutely massive because there's no earnings. Now, if you look at the business and you dig deeper, they're investing through the income statement. That's a perfect example of where you could have been missing something that's actually quite cheap, but on a price to earnings multiple looks crazy expensive. And so people wouldn't touch it. That's a really classic example of Amazon in like 2014, 2015 there. But ultimately it does matter if the business is optimized for profits, then P is a good metric to use. If they're not, and they're growing back into the business and they're not showing earnings either for tax purposes or for 
you know, growth purposes, then it's just not a good metric to use. Yeah, that's a good point. So thinking about, I guess, numbers kind of like we did with the dividend yield, is there a number for a PE that is too low or is, as you mentioned, the value trap possibility or is there something on the reverse of that that's, that's just too high or, or is it more of a business by business decision that you kind of have to look at, like you were mentioning with Amazon, more of the fundamentals of each business? It It is case by case, but if I was to put a rule of thumb, anything under 10, I'm, I'm, I'm curious. Like I, I'm instantly looking to investigate further, especially when like the Schiller PE ratio is so high, which is just like the market average of the price to earnings. So it does matter case by case, but unless it's like a bank stock trading at 10 times earnings, I'd be concerned if it's some high tech growth stock trading at that price. I'd, I'd be investigating why the market is discounting it so much. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. You know, I noticed uh, on a screener the other day that uh, Allstate uh, was trading at, I think, less than a 7 PE. <laughs> I thought, wow, that's crazy. So yeah, that, that's that's quite that's low. low. <laughs> that's quite low. <laughs> I've I've done some research in there. They have, they're not doing good um, from a market share perspective. No, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> I just it caught my eye that wow, that's really low. <laughs> so, but I think and it goes it goes back examples. to like yeah, it goes back to like the old cigar butt investing is like where deep value investors try to get one last puff out of the business, but. If you're a long-term investor, you don't want to make a bunch of trades. You don't want to have, you know, some sort of indicator giving you an exit strategy. You just want to buy companies that are obviously great, hold them for a long time, which I think is the best way to go about this. Then if all state is at seven times earnings and it looks very attractive, but is ultimately, you know, losing revenue, losing market share year over year. The business fundamentals are not improving, so you're not going to get val- you're not going to get like a multiple expansion from a 7 PE to like 15 and double the valuation anytime soon unless there's some real turnaround happening in the business. So it's really hard to have that kind of insight. But if you do have that kind of insight, then deep value investing works. I think it's very hard and I don't personally do it. You know, there's lots of ways to go about this and finding what makes sense for you, I believe is the key. And it looks to me, you know, we have two things that are very much on the extreme and staying away from some of those things that look too good to be true, both with the dividend yield and the low PE could serve a lot of investors well, particularly when you're first starting out. That's right. Because they look, they look very attractive on the surface. Right, just from those numbers. Yeah, makes sense. All right, what else you got? Hit us with some more. I'm going to tie the next two in, which is the the first part being not understanding the business fully is a mistake, and then thinking volatility and risk are the same thing. And the reason I want to tie those two together is because if there is volatility and a stock you own loses 25% of its value, which by the way, happens all the time. Uh, great companies have volatility. They see downturns. They see multiple 
compression in the stock loses its value. But that and risk are not the same thing. And if you don't understand the business, you won't know how to actually react. If you should sell the stock, if you should buy more, you won't know enough about the business to know if there's volatility or actual risk. So often on like finance websites, you'll see uh, the risk profile characterized by what's called beta. And what beta is, is it's just a measure of how volatile the company is in terms of like how much up and down the stock moves compared to the market average. That's beta. And they'll say that it's risky to own high beta stocks, uh, which means like it's very uncorrelated and there's lots of volatility. But that might not be true at all. Like volatility and risk are not the same thing. Real risk is the business losing market share, revenues declining, management turnover, uh, management not being honest and potentially fraudulent. That's risky. Bad acquisition strategies, just overall losing its greatness as a business. That's risky because not every business survives. I mean, over history, a lot of businesses do not survive and that's just normal capitalism. But those risks you have to understand by understanding the business, do a little bit of research, figure out what they actually do, not as a stock investor, but as a business investor. And I think those things are important to recognize that volatility and risk are the same are not the same thing. And a lot of price movement can drive a narrative that might not necessarily be true. And when you when you find that those things are separated, that's when you can find some pretty good opportunities. What's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's ebook for free at stockmarketpdf.com. That's a great point. And I, I want to relay something about the volatility aspect. So recently I bought, uh, I bought a slice of PayPal. So I had some extra cash in my account and I didn't really have anything I really wanted to buy a full share of. So I thought, what the heck? I'll, I'll, I'll try this slice thing out. And I bought a, a portion of PayPal. And this was about a month ago or so. And you want to talk about volatility. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> uh, I have seen the stock go from anywhere to 3% to 10% up or down in a day. So one day it'll be up 3%. The next day it'll be down 5 And then the next day it'll be up 8 And then the next day it'll be down 10 And it's just gyrating all over the place. And if it was a big position in my portfolio, it would probably drive me nuts. But uh, it it's... It's not risky. It's it's volatility. It's just because of everything that's going on in the market right now, and people moving out of tech into other things, or you know the the fears of inflation, whatever it may be. There's just a lot of volatility in the company. But if you look at you know all the things that you just mentioned, revenues are doing great. Their margins are great. Uh, the CEO is awesome. He's not going anywhere. They have plans, you know, things are going well with the company, but the stock price is trading all over the place. So there's really not any risk in me losing my investment. It's just the volatility of the, of the price changes is going up and down. So I, I think that's a, a great, a great understanding of what you're talking about. So I guess tell me a little bit more about understanding the business, kind of how do, how do people avoid that trap and, and how do they learn more about the business? Yeah, there's a, a lot of great places to start. 
the internet is a wonderful thing for everyone to be able to get access to information quickly with free reports, with ways to look at their financials very easily, to be able to look at their company website, figure out what they do, how they actually make money, go on their investor relations page. There'll be a, a PowerPoint deck that you can pull up right on their investor relations page telling you what the business actually does. And you'll be imp- you'll be surprised at how quickly 10 minutes can make in terms of actually understanding the business. There's the old Peter Lynch analogy about how people spend hours and weeks on finding the best deal when they're buying a new dishwasher for their house. You know, they, they read reviews, they find the right discount, they figure out which distribution, like who's the best retailer to buy it from. And then they get a whisper from a stock and put their life savings in it. And they couldn't even tell you what the business does. This happens a lot. I don't know why there's lots of reasons why and and behaviors behavioral like investing psychology that this happens, but it does happen. And you'd be surprised at how quickly you can figure out a little bit about the business. And it's going to take a while. Maybe, maybe you find enough about the business that you're confident in owning it and you start a starter position. And then that might be just the beginning of your research and fully diving into the business more and more while it's in your portfolio. I have learned more and more about the companies I own after owning them. That's very typical. Professional money managers do the same thing by starting a small position and having some skin in the game. I think it's a great way to do it. um, And I know a lot of people do. As a finance nerd, you would assume that I have my money game all together. Well, shocker, I didn't. Until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is a top-rated, all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. Monarch has a tool that allows you to easily import your data from Mint and keep all of your tags and categories. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving the product. They release updates every two weeks and allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. Kind of along those lines of, you know, say you bought a company, is there any other mistakes on your list where it kind of has to do with holding that company or um, selling the company, anything along those lines when it comes to portfolio strategy? Um, yeah. So I find it pretty common that people make a lot of trades. Am I answering your question right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I find new investors are in and out of businesses constantly. 
what'll happen is they'll make a ton of trades. People ask me like, what am I doing with my investment portfolio? And I, I just simply buy stocks once a month at the beginning of the month, pay myself first and just kind of go that way. And what'll happen is when people are making too many trades, they start to gamify it and they forget what business is like investing in real businesses is about. As cheesy as it sounds, when you buy stocks, you are buying a sliver of the business. Now, when you change your mindset to being a business owner, like the classic Warren Buffett-esque type approach, you will massively change your mindset on how you approach investing. Because if you're in and out of businesses constantly, one, it's not very profitable and you're going to rack up all these trades. And two, you're not uh, you're you're going to act irrationally by basically selling on bad volatility when it could be a buying opportunity of great businesses. So I see people making way too many trades all the time. I make like 12 trades a year because that's how many months there are. Uh, maybe 13 or 14 in total if I sell something where the thesis was wrong or I was just wrong. That happens. But in the grand scheme of things, that is not a lot per year. And it takes patience. Like Investing is the most patient game you can possibly think of. You have decades to do this, decades to make money. And if you can approach it like a business owner, trust me, you'll only you'll not only sleep better at night, but you will perform much better and compound your wealth much quicker. If you just take a deep breath, don't make as many trades and just act like a business owner, not a business trader. And that's an important distinction. It kind of goes back to what you're saying earlier too about how you're going to experience volatility and you need to separate that from what the reality is. And if the reality is I'm still a part owner of a good business, the volatility shouldn't matter. Exactly. And if you focus on the business fundamentals, you will recognize when there is opportunity and when the market is just acting a certain way. Uh, it becomes a lot easier if you have a like sell off like a, a year ago today in March, you saw stocks like down another 10% day after day when the, the coronavirus has made a pandemic and these kinds of things are happening. That makes it super easy because everything's down and everything's on sale and you can pick up good businesses on sale. But what happens is, is when these events happen is people are afraid to buy. And then every single market correction in hindsight always looks like a buying opportunity. But when you're investing forward events like that always look like a market risk. So I find that a very funny thing that happens with not just new investors, with all investors is that in the past, every market downturn will always look like a buying opportunity and forward thinking will always look like a risk. So if you can kind of change your mindset, be greedy when others are fearful, you'll do really well. Well, in defense of the average investor, it's hard to put money in the market if you're not sure if you're going to have your job tomorrow. Fair enough. That's that's a good point. (laughs) That's my my one defense for investors. Okay. Uh, Moving on. Um, what is another mistake you see? Yeah, I I find new investors, they want to buy, they hear about value investing, they want to buy cheap stocks, they look at low PEs. What they do is they they confuse valuation and cheapness 
around actual low share prices. So what they'll do is they'll find some penny stock trading, some mining junior exploration company that you couldn't even tell me what they do, but the shares trade for a dollar um, and you can buy a hundred of them and you feel good about it versus buying a stock that trades for $95 and you have one share. Now, market capitalization is defines what the business is worth on the stock market. The share price means absolutely nothing. And when Tesla and Apple split their shares last summer and they both saw tremendous returns after, and people are like, hey, look, you just buy stocks after they split, the price is lower and people will buy more shares. Now, just because that happens doesn't mean it's right. Now, I, I find that what's happening a lot of a lot of times when you buy a stock and it goes up, you, you're getting that confirmation bias that you were right. But you could have been right for whatever reason, not necessarily correct one. So buying low share prices does not mean that it's trading cheaply. Uh, it has no correlation to the value of the business unless you have another key piece of information, which is the amount of shares that are outstanding because you multiply the share price by the shares outstanding and you get the market capitalization. That is the number that actually matters and the one that you should focus on. Like what a share of Google trades for like 2100 USD or something like that. So that's, you know, but that company does about $750 in revenue per share. So the share price really, really quite irrelevant. And uh, I see a lot of very new investors make that mistake. Yeah, that's a great one. So I know that uh, when I first got started, I, I fell into that trap too, but I quickly learned that that was not the right way to go. Uh, let's talk about, I guess, another one. So the something I know Andrew and I have butted heads, not butted heads, but we've encountered in some of our conversations and, and questions from, from listeners is thinking that trading and investing are the same thing. What do you, what are your thoughts on that? Oh God, you ready, Dave? You're about to get me fired up. <laughs> Fire up, baby. Um, before I talk about that, I was just trying to pull something up as we were talking about volatility because I think it's a really good uh, example that can give you a real example of how volatility is completely normal and stocks move up like a roller coaster, uh, but it does not indicate real risk. So Apple stock over its time as a public public company since it had its IPO has fallen 10% 27 times, 25% 17 times, over 50% six times, and over 75% three times. So if you've held Apple through that IPO, you saw 75% of the value wiped out three times, over half of its value wiped out six times. Like volatility is complete. It's the only thing that's normal. Um, that's why I'm so not I a think that's investor. very good. <laughs> you like sleeping at night. Exactly. I think that's a good way to highlight, you know, a business that was obviously executing and now the largest public co on the planet. Um, but volatility is completely normal. All right, sidetracks. But uh, yes, trading and investing. Oh, God. Uh, they are not the same thing. They couldn't be further away from the same thing. One is trying to make a lot of trades, be in and out of businesses, timing the market. And the other one is you know, dollar cost averaging into good businesses over time 
uh, trying to find good value and growth, wherever that intersection may be. And one is owning businesses and one is trading businesses. Now, unfortunately, what has happened, and this is this is not the new investor's fault. It's really it's really a, a tough situation because what happens is, is Dave, say I I start Googling how to get started investing. Now, what will happen is so I say I go watch highlights of the, the hockey game last night, you can tell I'm Canadian. You watch it on YouTube and you get hit with an ad of some YouTube trading bro telling you to sign up for his Discord like trading signals chart talking about what's called technical analysis and they'll talk about price movement they'll give you a whole pitch on a stock and not even mention anything about the business they talk about the share price moving one way or another they used to trade for a dollar 10 and now it's two dollars and 50 cents think about how much money you could have made this is not investing most of these are scams and it is a complete waste of time a complete waste of time if someone pitches a stock to me and doesn't even tell me what the business does, but tells me about the price chart, not only do I want to throw up, but I'm not listening. So differentiating trading and investing are is very key for new investors. They're not the same thing. One's a waste of time. One is very worthwhile. And if you can learn that very quickly, you'll do quite well. Do you think that Robinhood had some impact on this disparity between what people think about trading and investing? So, yeah, it's a good question. I I don't it's easy to shift the blame on a brokerage like Robinhood, for instance, but it's yes, they've they are guilty of gamification of this, which is basically turning you know, the stock market into a casino, which I think is bad for everyone, especially people who are just trying to learn about it and think that this act of trading and gamification is what they're supposed to be doing. So there's a whole ecosystem that's kind of bringing people in to the wrong mindset right out of the gate. So, so that is bad. That is definitely bad. But all it is, is, you know, competition and classic capitalism of costs going down and down and now you have no fee trading. You can go in and out of stuff as much as you want with no fees and I just don't know. I so I have two th- two thoughts on this. One is that fees are lower than ever which makes it the best time to be an investor ever because low fees is the one thing that you can guarantee you can control and if you can keep your fees low that is going to help you long term. But what is happening on the contrary to that is no fee investing means people are in and out of stuff, trading stuff constantly. They're not acting like investors, they're thinking like traders and they're being gamified. Um, and there's an old adage in Silicon Valley that says if the product is free, then you are the product. And we saw that play out with the GameStop saga where you know, they're getting payment for order flow. That's how Robinhood actually makes money basically from volume. And it doesn't, it doesn't end, it doesn't end great. All the retail trading, I, I just don't think it's good. I don't think it provides anything to society. You know, someone sitting at home and day trading, 
sorry if that's what you do, but I, I just can't really picture that being productive to society, to be quite frank. So there are, there are lots of pros and cons to this low trade, low commission or free commission trading. Uh, but at the end of the day, what you're seeing is a complete gamification of retail trading. And I just, I don't think it ends well. And we've already seen examples of that. So we definitely have some things to kind of avoid. Obviously, there's a good path within there if you can be an investor who sticks it out and, you know, doesn't turn down the wrong path and, and tries to find good investments that they can hold for the long term. So say now you're talking to an investor just starting out, um, is now cognizant of these things and is now going to try to avoid running into them as much as they can. What should they focus on now? You know, what, what part of um, investing businesses, all, all the great things you mentioned about the ways that we can compound our capital over time, what should be the focus and maybe what's a stepping stone from here? Yeah, I, it's a great question um, because I've been telling you what not to do, but now like what, what, what you should do is buy great companies. I'm going to take a Terry Smith quote, who's the CEO, CIO of, of Fundsmith, of, very well-performing hedge fund. He writes a great book. And the quote is, buy great companies, don't overpay, and do nothing. That's the quote. And that's really powerful because step one's the the really, what you might think is the hard part of buying great companies. But the hard the hardest part is actually number three, which is do nothing. You know, it's it's the one profession that people go to work every day and work in finance, and they, so they feel like they should be doing something. So they do a bunch of trades, and really, that's what you should avoid is 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 making a lot of trades. So doing nothing is sometimes the most powerful and profitable thing you can do, uh, just by holding great companies, don't overpay, and do nothing. So what'll happen is investors, new investors, especially get caught up in like a price narrative. What what I mean by that is that because a business stock price has risen so much that there's some sort of narrative attached to it, it'll continue to go up and that it's a great business, but they don't focus on the fundamentals. Uh, They don't focus on the competitive landscape of the industry. They don't focus on is revenue growing. They don't focus on if if the company's generating free cash or or on the verge of generating free free cash. They don't focus on uh, management's return on invested capital over the last 10 years, which I think is a really important metric or return on equity you could use for like banking stock. These are things that actually really matter. The actual business fundamentals like revenue growth, free cash flow growth, if it has a safe balance sheet, if the company has a strong moat, like meaning very hard for competitors to disrupt them, what you'll end up happening is is companies with really strong moats, people actually start innovating on top of you, which actually provides uh, a feedback and like a bottleneck and provides more growth for the business that they're operating on top of. For instance, Visa and MasterCard, you know, payments are on top of everything that is being innovated is on top of the rails of Visa and MasterCard, but not actually disrupting, you know, the card and the merchant payment system. So that's a perfect example of something to focus on. Now, if if that changes, the thesis changes on that example, then you need to think about it. And you need to to think about if the if the moat is 
increasing or decreasing, if the business is getting better or worse, we are trying to own companies that will become bigger, better, more profitable, have more market share in the future than currently right now. And that's a good place to start. Really, it is. If you think a company is obviously great and they will be obviously great in the future, then that's a really great, great start. Now, after that, you can dive into the numbers and get a little nerdy like we like to do. Look at their financial statements and their, you know, look how much free cash the business is actually generating. But really, that should be secondary to understanding the company that you're actually investing in. And uh, if you buy great companies and pretty much do nothing, you will be shocked at how fast this stuff starts to compound. Uh, it's, it's really incredible what the stock market has generated for investors over the last hundred years. It, it really is. And um, it, it can happen so fast too, where the market can be very calm and all the gains happen in one month or even one week. So you really have to be invested in the long term if you want to see the positive effects for that. And that can go for any stock too. So, you know, out of all those great things that you mentioned, you know, wanting to buy the right businesses, not overpay and do nothing, um, maybe take one of those. Talk about your podcast. Give us an example of how you guys will have deeper discussions about any of those things on your show and where people can go to listen to more of you and Simon. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Thanks for the handoff. Yeah. I, I, so I do co-host a weekly episode called The Canadian Investor. We do deep dives into specific companies all the time. Sometimes we talk about... uh Canadian specific stuff. If you're into that, some of your listeners may be if they're Canadian, some not. But I think the value really comes to some of the deep dives that we do. Last week, we did a deep dive into a company called Unity. Unity is the largest gaming engine company. So more than 50% of games, like video games are built on Unity's engine. The company did IPO fairly recently, but they're not a new company by any stretch of the imagination. They have huge market share. Very interesting business. Growth is incredible. And it's a, basically a duopoly with the Unreal Engine, which is owned by Tencent, which is also a public company. You can buy an ADR of it. Um, but that is ticker U, Unity. We talk about companies like that all the time. The risks, the benefits, and uh, that's typically what we do. And a lot of that content comes from Stratosphere. My company, it's a research platform where you can find financial statements, competitor analysis, and and research like companies like Unity. And uh, it's been really fun. It's been really, really fun. All right, folks. Well, with that, we are going to wrap up our conversation for today. I wanted to thank Braden for taking the time to come and talk to us today and dropping some great knowledge with us. Uh, definitely check out his podcast, uh, The Canadian Investor. There is a lot of fantastic information and it's very entertaining as well. So without any further ado, I'm going to go ahead and sign us off. You guys go out there and invest with a margin of safety, emphasis on the safety. Have a great week. We'll talk to you all next week. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day.
The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and/or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking.、Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and、uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick, so I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With LuckyLandSlots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking.、Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and、uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick, so I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.